Musicians, singers, appreciate your help. Uh, amen. Appreciate everyone being in the house of God today. I really do appreciate you making this your church and for being here. Uh, a couple of thank yous before we start our welcomes. First, we want to welcome back Mr. and Mrs. Nensang are here. Back from last, last week. We want to welcome you out. Praise God. The newlyweds are back in church. That's always a good sign. Hallelujah. And I also want to thank uh, Jane and Grace and the crew for putting up the Christmas decorations around church. Church looks beautiful. Why don't we give them a hand and thank them for all their help. Amen. Thank you for all of that. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to the book of Micah. Micah. If you don't know where Micah is, it's just before Nahum. So I should help you out a little bit. Micah. This is one of the best scriptures in the whole Bible. When I read it, you're going to be like, oh, that's all. Don't read it yet. Don't just zone out and read it. And then like, just let's all read it together in a second. But um, one of in, a, in Australia, they play AFL. And I know you all think AFL is like a rubbish sport. And at points it is, but it's a very, very physical sport. Uh, try playing it and talk to me after two minutes and see if you're out of breath yet. But um, you'll see in the AFL, they take these massive marks. In Australia, we call them speckies. If you take a specky, that means you've, you've jumped on somebody else's shoulders and you've taken the mark. And they jump super high. Um, but one thing that they teach is that they teach you how to fall after you take that mark. These guys, get, these guys can jump on uh, guys' shoulders. These guys are two meters tall jumping on their shoulders with their knees or even with their foot. So they're three, four meters up in the air and they come crashing down. But what's very important is that they teach them how to fall because if not, they could break their neck, they could break their arm, pop a shoulder out, get concussed, injure themselves. And so they teach them how to fall. And so to this morning, I want to teach all of you this morning how to fail as a Christian. Because you're going to fail. And so you better learn how to fail or else you break your neck and they'll be like, Pastor, how did this happen to me? Because I told you you were going to fall over from time to time. And so it's a class they don't teach in school. They teach you how to be successful, but they don't teach you how to fail. And if you don't know how to fail, you won't know how to be successful. Okay, so, and so the difference between average people and achieving people is not where they grew up. It's not um, their background. It's not how talented or the opportunity the difference, they say, the quote here, the difference between average people and achieving people is their perception and response to failure. The difference between average people and achieving people is their perception and response to failure. And so failing doesn't make you a failure uh, at all. And so I'm going to preach a sermon I've entitled Failing Forward. There's a book called Failing Forward, which I encourage everyone to read. Um, you, it's on YouTube as an audio book. And so I encourage everyone, John Maxwell, Failing Forward. I read this book and I wrote this sermon from that book. Uh, and so I encourage you all to read it. It will help you in life. So let's turn to Micah 7, 8 to 10. I love this text. This is all, you highlight it and this, this is awesome. So let's read. Bible says, Do not rejoice over me, my enemy, when I fall, for I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light and I will see his righteousness. I love that scripture. And then, then he goes like on the kill. Then she who is my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her. Now she will be trampled down like mud in the streets. Isn't that a beautiful scripture? That is a top scripture. I'm going to preach that this morning. Failing forward. Let's pray. 
this morning. God, we're grateful for your presence. Lord, I pray, help us to understand uh, our stumblings when we, when we fall, when we fail in life. Help us to realize that they are just steps to get to our future and our destiny. Lord, I pray, encourage those maybe failing at the moment that are, that are haunted by their past. God, I pray, bring victory, bring hope, and bring clarity by the Holy Ghost, God. We need your anointing or else we can't do anything at all, God. We thank you for what you're going to do this morning and in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody says with a shout. Amen. First, we want to look at the gospel truth. And many of you, especially when you're younger, you have goals and dreams, and, and you should. You should have goals and dreams. But the problem with these goals and dreams is that we only see the, the, the pinnacle of the mountain. We don't see how to get there. And getting up the mountain, you, there's going to be many failings. So let's just settle this right now before we move on anywhere in this sermon. You will fail in life, and you will fail hard. Let's just, let's just draw a line there and just, we're all in this boat together. And the bigger you fail, it's actually better for you. Because some people here, you're trying to live your life trying to not fail. If I just not fail, my life is a success. But that's a waste of time because there's no point trying to avoid something that is certain to happen. Proverbs 24, 16, For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, and the wicked shall fall by calamity. So righteous people fall, and wicked people fall. Everyone falls. Everyone fails. The righteous fail seven times. Seven is the number of completion, which is the number of God. So you will fail completely. Let's just, let's, can we just sort of get to this point? Because we talk about, if I fail, it's the worst thing. It's not. It's going to happen. You will fail. There's no getting around it. There's a quote by this guy who did a study on people who make mistakes. He says, people who don't take risks generally make about two mistakes a year. While people who do take risks generally make about two mistakes a year. So even if you try your whole life to avoid making a mistake, you will make the same amount of mistakes as those who take risks. So you, you can't avoid it. Failure is a part of every aspect of life. Think about in sport. How many times have you dropped the ball? All the time. I saw you on Friday. All of you. You got the, the breakaway. It's all on you and you dropped the ball. Everyone's like, ah, and you failed the team. Praise the Lord. You failed. It's part of the game. How do you miss the tackle? You miss, <laughs> Chris is saying, no, I've seen him miss any tackles. You, you, you missed the tag, you, you missed the touch, or you said, no, no, you didn't do that. You missed it completely. You failed big time. It's true in rugby. It's true in baseball. They say in baseball, if you hit one in every three, that, that, that percentage, over 30%, you are high enough to be in the, in the Hall of Fame, in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Think about that. One in three. If you fail more often than not, they say you're in the Hall of Fame. Because this is part of life. Basketball, Steph Curry, the greatest shooter of all time, his career shooting percentage is 47%, not even half. So if you miss half of your shots, you can be considered one of the greatest shooters of all time. So we know that in sport. Let's think, let's transfer it to marriage. Ladies. <laughs> it's all right, I'll get to the guys soon, but it's all right, just let's start. Yeah, okay. Have you been the perfect wife submitted to your husband as unto the Lord? Like, really? Like, like come on, let's talk. Come on, like, can we just not lie in church? Men, like seriously, you've been the perfect husband. You've loved your wife even as Christ loved the church. Ha! Forget it. Didn't even love her this morning. What are you talking about? What about in parenting? You've been the perfect father. You've been the perfect mother. So if you haven't, none of us have. So what? Are you just going to quit? I haven't been the perfect father, so I'm leaving everybody. What? I haven't been a good, good wife, so that's it. I'm leaving. That, that is not how it works. So it's true in every area. Can you believe the Bible is filled of stories of people failing? 
That's why I love reading the Bible, because it makes me feel like, I'm actually pretty good. Like, look, look at these guys. They're really messed up. Like, seriously. And I, what I love is that the, Holy, the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit thought, you know what? These failures, failures need to be remembered for all time. I'm going to write it down. Like, aren't you glad you didn't live in Bible days? Because our failures no one knows about, or two, three people know about. Everyone in the world will ever know about these failures, and they will preach on them like I'm doing this morning. Think about Abraham. I'm not even going to address the fact that he slept with his next door neighbor. I'm not even going to go down that path. All right. And, and he produced all of the Arab nations and the Muslims came from me. Okay, talk about a mistake. But I'm not even going to address that. Genesis 12, he's going to Egypt. There's a famine. He goes to Egypt to get some food. And his wife's good looking. Sarah's beautiful, the Bible says. And so he says, listen, uh, because you're my wife uh, and you're beautiful, they're going to want to kill me uh, so they can marry you. So just tell everyone that you're my sister. Is that all good? Because then they won't kill me. They'll probably just, you know, take you, sleep with you and all that. But hey, they'll leave me alone. So that's all good. Is that okay? That's what he does. Ladies, imagine your husband said to you, babe, I love you, but just tell everyone that you're my sister. Don't, 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 don't say nothing. You'd be like, hmm, I think you're sleeping outside tonight and for a, a while, you know. And he did it twice. Like one, okay, twice. And then his son did it. Because he was faithless that God would protect him. Now, what is Abraham known as? The father of our? And he can't, even, he can't even tell people that his wife's his wife. This guy's got serious issues. What about Moses? This dude had serious anger issues. More than all of you here combined. He sees an, an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. The Bible says he looked that way. And he looked the other way. Like, it's so cool. The Bible's like, he looked left. He looked right. No one's there. And he killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. Because that no one's going to ever find out about it. When, you know, when, <laughs> when Mr. Muslim guy doesn't show up at, at home, he's like, Where, where's so-and-so? I don't know, he just disappeared. People found out about it. He runs away for 40 years. Imagine skipping church for 40 years. This is a story of epic failure. He used to live in Pharaoh's palace. Now he's in, living in the desert. Finally, God restores him, goes. Then he goes, he's on the mountain. He gets the Ten Commandments from God. And God wrote them with his finger. God's finger wrote them. Talk about God's handwriting. Gives them to Moses. Moses walking down the, the mountain. He sees them, the children of Israel, with the golden calf. They're dancing around. He gets so angry, he breaks the tablets that God just gave him. Are you insane? This is from God himself. And now you just smash them again. God said, go speak to the rock. I'm going to give him water. And he goes, listen here, you rebellious people. I'm going to give you stinking water. And he smacks the rock with a, with a rod. And God's like, are you insane? Dude had issues, but look at Numbers 12.3. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. Does that sound like a humble man? So how is he humble? Because failure makes you humble. So failure is good for you. Because if we didn't fail, we'd all be prideful pigs. And can the church say amen? Amen. I'll say it for myself. Amen. Gotcha. What about Peter? Talk about a dude always running his mouth. Like... Jesus said, you're all going to forsake me. And he's like, dude, Jesus, listen, I'm not going to forsake you. John over there, yeah, him maybe. He looks a bit dodgy. Um, you know, Bartholomew, who has the name of Bartholomew? Like, it is definitely, he's leaving you. Not me. These guys are Lukies, not me. Jesus says, before the rooster crows in the morning, in 12 hours, bro, you're done. So then he starts following from a distance, as we know, and you should never follow Christ from a distance because you always end up forsaking him. Then he starts swearing and cursing that he doesn't know Christ. And look at Luke 22, 60 to 63. Now, have any of you ever failed like this? Peter said, man, I do not know what you are saying. That is after his cursing and swearing. And immediately, while he's still speaking, the rooster crowed. 
And then look at verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine saying, I don't beep and know Christ, and Christ just looks at you? You don't know me? Oof, oh, how do you recover from that? How do you recover from that? You know, we get, we get you know, you, we can't recover when we talk smack about someone and they find out about it. Imagine you talking smack about Christ and he looked you in the eye. This is a major failure. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. But look at verse 63. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. I never saw this before. I bet they were probably mocking him about Peter. Peter, this was supposed to be your number one disciple, Jesus, and he swears that he doesn't even know you. Whew. Then Peter preaches the first sermon and 3,000 people get saved. So failure is going to happen. Look, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. Like, you've got to be pretty legit to baptize Jesus. Then he doubts him, sends his disciples, can you just check if, I, if he's actually the Christ? Because I'm a bit, I don't know, because John the Baptist is in jail. Because how many know when we're baptizing people, God is great when you're in jail. Is he really God? I don't know. And in that same chapter, he says, should we look for Jesus or is there someone else? In that same chapter, Matthew 11, 11, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born among women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist. The failure. The one who doubted Christ. So failure will happen. It happens to everyone. And failure is actually good for you. So why are we going to failure? So why are we going to fail? Why did I, see, I'm going to fail a lot of times in this sermon. Why is this going to happen? Why will we fail? It's because success, listen, success involves failure. We think success is never making a mistake. No, 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 no. Success is you screw up, but then you keep going. And you learn from your failure. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying, yeah, go fail, it's good for you. I'm not purposely. But when you make a mistake or you stumble, that is not the end of the road. That is part of the journey to success. Because success is a journey. It's not, a, it's not just a point. It's like baking a cake. I don't bake cakes. Beck does every now and again. But I've seen from, she puts different ingredients in. Those ingredients don't taste good by themselves. No one has ever said, I'll tell you what I'm really craving. Craving some flour. I just love some flour, some bicarb. Like, I'd really just really appreciate just, just salt, just knock it down. No one's ever said that. Why? Because they, they're horrible by themselves. But mixed together with some other things, and it makes something beautiful. makes something pleasing. Failure is one of those things. Just like flour is necessary to baking a cake, your failure is necessary to your success. It's necessary. It's an ingredient. And so it's this journey that you will get through. You have to do it. You will never get to success if you never fail. You say, I'm too scared to fail. Well, you will never succeed. And if you never fail, either A, you're not trying, but B, you actually are failing because you're not trying. <laughs> when Beck and I we, one, we had one night in Hawaii on the way back um, from America and we're in the pool and I'm jumping in and stuff and Beck's just sitting on the side I'm like what are you doing she goes I don't want to get my hair wet I said we're in blinking Hawaii get your stinking hair wet my beloved of my life the one whom I love with all my heart you're in Hawaii you're at the, we're at the pool in Hawaii and you're like you know what I don't really, you know, I'm not, not really this is life you're going to have to get your hair wet it's going to happen. It's the gospel truth. And some of you, you base your life on, you view the value of your life whether you fail or not. And that's not true. That You shouldn't do that. God will never define you by your mistakes. Ever. How does God define us? By his son. All through the Bible talks about changing names. 
And that's because God gives us a new identity because God doesn't remember our failings. When we get to heaven, we're going to get a new name. And so don't live in the past of your failures. I've got to move on because this, today's a little bit longer sermon, but I hope God speaks to you. Let's look secondly at the growing trend. The growing trend. Verse 8 says, Do not rejoice over me, my enemy, when I fall. It's a picture of someone mocking someone else, rejoicing in their downfall. And let's be honest, that's, that's what we all hate about failure. It's not even the fact that we failed. It's that people rejoice when we fail. It's how we look. We don't even fear failure. We fear what people will think about us. That's the deeper issue. And this is one of the hardest battles. It's not that you failed. It's what people think. And we're so consumed about what people think and our self-image. But everybody fails. Fails. Many of you know this. Some of you may not know this. That uh, before I married Beck, I was engaged to another girl. And talk about an epic failure. I stuffed up big time. Like, big time. I was engaged to this girl. And God told me, clearly, months before the wedding, God said, she's not the one. Clear as day. I knew, 100%. So did I break it off straight away? No, not not a chance. Do you know why? Because I was scared what other people would think. I was scared what people would say. And the embarrassment was like nearly too much to bear. This was the pastor's daughter. Now what's the pastor going to think about me? What's my family going to think about me? I had family that had flown over, already booked their tickets from America. They actually did end up coming. Wasted all that money. What are my friends going to think about me? What about my work that I've been witnessing to for the last two years, three years? What are they going to think about me? And I was more concerned about what other people thought about me than the actual failure. And it's really, really messed me up. And some people in your mind, the worst thing that could happen to you is that you fail. Can I tell you, in God's eyes, the best thing that will ever happen to you is that you fail. It's the best thing that ever happened. Do you know what the best thing that ever happened to me? Is that I failed in that relationship. Because I was thinking, of, imagine if I didn't. Imagine, imagine if I didn't break it off because I was too scared of failing in front of other people. Number one, I wouldn't be married today. 100%, no, no chance. She's, she had a kid to another person and within three years she was divorced with that guy. I wouldn't be in the ministry. Probably wouldn't be saved. We definitely wouldn't have this church. You probably wouldn't be saved. I, I, I wouldn't have Beck. I wouldn't have Isaiah. I wouldn't have all of you. So was my failure a failure? It wasn't. Was it good for me? Absolutely. It was the best thing that ever happened. Did it kill me? 100%. But sometimes we need to get killed. Because it makes you humble. So why was I so concerned about others, people, what other people thought about my failure? Because of this. We link our self-worth with our performance. If I perform well, I'm worth something. If I don't perform, I'm not worth anything. When we fail, you, hit a, you take a hit on your value. And you have all sorts of crazy thoughts in your head, right? It's not the failure, it's what's in your head. Because the failure is not that big. Because people don't even remember it. People don't really care. Like we think everyone cares. <laughs> people don't care. You have things like you're worthless. I knew you weren't good enough. You'll never be good enough. 
you just might as well quit now. You always stuff it up. You're hurting other people. Just stop. Everyone thinks you're a failure. You should just quit. Reason being, because we associate our value with performance. And the growing trend is that when people fail, they throw in the towel. I'll just quit. I'm, I'm not doing this. Have you ever felt that? We've all felt that. It's easier to quit than to keep going, right? That's why we do it, because we go for the, the path of least resistance. And we've all felt that. But the problem with that logic is that we're going to fail in every area of life. So we're, gonna fail, we're just going to quit on everything? We can't. Should we all just pack up and go home right now? You're telling me you're never going to sin? So should we just, just, thanks for coming. We had a good run. We had six years. Let's pack it up and go. So what should we do? So we need to get our self-worth and our value, not from performance, but from God himself. You have to be connected to God because God's love doesn't change even when we fail. Reason being, number one, God's love can't, is infinite. It can't diminish. It can't get any more or less. It, God is love. Every, all of love of all humanity is all placed inside of you. And so it doesn't matter what you do. And so number one, God's love is infinite, infinite. Number two, he died for you while you were failing. So, think about it. Romans 5.8. God demonstrated his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Okay? While we were still failing, Christ died for us. So now that you're not failing as bad, do you think God's going to be like, oh, what the heck now? That's it. Stuff, that's stuff these guys. God's not going to turn around now. He didn't, he didn't forsake us when we were the ultimate failure. Now that we're trying and we make some mistakes, when we were in full rebellion, God still loved us. Now we make a couple of mistakes and we think God's not going to love us? Of course he does. He knows. You think he's going to try and give? He's, he's going to give up on us now? God's love doesn't change, and He loved you just as much as He ever did. Because your performance does not determine your value. If you're amazing, cool. If you're horrible, cool. You don't change to God. You're the same. And sometimes we, we just get so. How could God love me? How could God love me? Yeah, true. On your best day, how could God love you? Your best day ever, ever. You you want four billion people to Christ? How could God love you? Your good works are filthy rag. How could God love you? Because it's not about works, it's about who God is. I hope you understand that. And the issue at hand is that fear of failure can become a culture that, that hits other people. One of the stories in the book, I really do encourage all of you to read the book. Uh, the audio book is under three hours. You can knock it over in a week. You can knock it over at a night if you wanted to. But imagine if you listen to half an hour a day, you'd, you'd knock the whole book out in a week. The issue is about culture and so they talk about the story of these four monkeys they were put in a room and they had this pole and they had the, uh, all these bananas at the top of the pole and whenever a monkey would one monkey would go up the pole try and climb up to get the monkey the, the bananas they'll get a massive hose like a, a fire hydrant hose and they'll shoot the monkey with this water and it'll blast the monkey and it'll go away uh, crying in the corner and it'll try a couple of times but then it'll get blasted then each monkey will try but then it'll get watered down and so no one will do it then they took out, of the four monkeys, they all tried and failed. They took out one monkey and put another guy in who's never, who's never failed. Then this monkey will try and go up the, the, the pole for the first time and all the other monkeys will pull him down and stop him because they failed and they don't want him to do anything so they pull him down. Then they take out the other three monkeys and replace them with new monkeys. And none of them, so none of them have ever uh, touched the water. None of them ever failed. But as soon as one goes climbing up the pole, they'll all grab him and pull him down. Even though none of them have failed, but the fear of failure has become a culture there. And even though they haven't done anything, they still pull each other down. 
can I just say, the fear of failure is trans- transferable. And you can put that spirit on other people. And if you don't hear anything else from this sermon, remember this. If you have failed and you are spreading your failure to everyone else and encouraging them, don't do it because I failed, God have mercy on your soul. We, we, we've got enough people dragging us down. The last thing we need in the house of God is someone trying to do something and everyone pulling him down. And say, no, because you failed. Okay, you failed and you want to be a failure for the rest of your life. That's on you. But don't cause other people to fail. Then we do that in marriage, right? Someone's getting married. <laughs> Well, the ball and chain begins, my friend. You know, like it's just, or someone wants to get sent out, or someone wants to be involved in ministry. Oh, it's going to be hard. Well, okay, cool. What's not hard? It's all going to be hard, but it's worth it. So don't let your life be full of, of a culture of fear, and don't put that on other people either. I've got a cool quote here. It said, losers quit when they fail. Winners fail when they succeed. Well, fail until they succeed. Failure defeats losers, but it inspires winners. I failed my exam in some subjects, but my friend passed. Now he's an engineer at Microsoft, and I'm the owner. Bill Gates. Just because you fail doesn't mean that life's over. It's you, just, you keep going. Failure defeats losers, but it inspires winners. So when you fail, you'll be like, all right, cake that one. Let's try again. Now I know what not to do. That's really bad. Tell you how I knew, knew how to find a really good girl. Because I knew what was really bad on the other side. Because I made a really, really bad choice. So I knew what to do the second time. I was good, right? So life is not about when you fail or if you fail. It's about how you process failure. Okay, Pastor Mitchell's got a famous quote. Life is not so much about what happens to you. It's how you react to what happens to you. Because I deal with people all the time. Some people, they go through certain things. And they backslide, complain, hate God, hate the church, hate everybody turn Muslim, you know what I mean, like go full. And other people, they go through the same problem and they rise and they become great men and women of God. So it doesn't matter if you failed, it's just how you react. Just because you failed in the past doesn't mean God is done with you either. How many of you have thought that? I failed, God's, God's done with me. I've felt that heaps of times. I preached a sermon, I was like, that was so bad. Like even the devil was depressed after that sermon. Like it was so bad. It was horrible. Right? But just because you make a mistake doesn't mean God's done with you. Of course not. First Samuel is obviously all about a guy by the name of Samuel. And um, Samuel, he's in charge, he's a prophet. He's in charge of anointing the next king of Israel, the first king of Israel. They reject God. They want a king. They don't want God as king. They want a physical king. So He's in charge of that, and he anoints Saul. Saul's the first king. Saul's a big guy, good-looking guy, head and shoulders above everybody else. He's the perfect guy. And he anoints him as king. God told him that's the one. He anoints him as king. But the problem is, Saul is a very bad king. Saul's a horrible king. And he, he makes some really bad choices. And that affects the people. And now, many times, uh, how do I say this? When we take other people's failures as our own. So we help other people, but when they mess up, we think that we messed up because we didn't help them enough. So here's Samuel, he, he anointed Saul, he's in charge, it was all on him. Everyone's looking at Samuel, anoint us a king, you're from God. And he anoints Saul, and Saul becomes horrible. And so Samuel's probably thinking, you know what, I'm never doing that again. I, I step out for God, and it fails. I was obedient to God, and it fails. Saul is wicked, and now the people are against me now. And at that point, many of us, I'll just be a token Christian. I'll just do a couple of things here and there, but I am not going to 
be the full man of God or woman of God that God's called me to be because I failed. Look what God says to Samuel again after this. 1 Samuel 16.1 Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? I love then this line here. Fill your horn with oil and go. For I'm sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite and I provided myself a king amongst his sons. Samuel could have said, you know, I, I don't want to go. I, I've, done, I've, I've tried and I failed. I don't want to do this again. I failed really bad. Maybe you've, you've made a mistake. Maybe you failed in ministry. Maybe you failed in your marriage. Maybe you failed in education, your finances, whatever area. This is what the word of the Lord is saying to you. Fill up your horn with oil and go. What that means is go, fill yourself with the spirit of God and go and do what I told you to do. And here is Samuel. He's like, ah, fine. He's probably chucked his horn of oil out. You know, he's like, I'm never using that again. You know, he has to go through the cupboard, finds it underneath his rugby boots and stuff. He finds it, you know, it's there. And he gets it. And who does he anoint? He anoints David, the greatest king of all Israel. And Jesus comes from the house of David because Samuel was obedient after failure. Verse 8 to 9. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will enlighten me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because he has, I have sinned against him. Yeah, I screwed up and I'm going to pay for my consequences. Absolutely. I, I stuffed up here. He goes, but the Lord's going to plead my case and execute justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light and I will see righteousness. Some people here, you're so focused on your past and it's ruining your future. You view everything in light of your failures in the past. The reason you don't want to do something, I failed in the past, therefore I don't want to do something again. There's a cool book out. It's called Love Like You've Never Been Hurt. It's a good book. You should read it. But there's time where you're supposed to go out for God as if you've never failed. Live for God like you've never failed. Not because you won't, but because God is still great. It's time to move on and go again, not to quit and pull back. Isaiah 43, 18. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. I love that. Because, yeah, you caked it. Okay, forget about it. I'm going to do something new in your life. How many are glad God's going to do something new in your life? It's not, God's not a baseball umpire. One strike, fine, I'll give you another chance. Two strike, you're on your final warning. You do this one more time, you're out of here. Mate. Third strike, that's it, get out of here. I don't want to see you ever again. God, God, we say God's a God of the second chance, but He's not. He's God of like the four billionth chance. How many chances does God give us every day? His mercy is renewed every single day. So if you would just humble yourself before God, because prideful people say no to God's forgiveness. Humble people say, thank you. Thank you that God, your grace is sufficient. So the growing trend is people quit. But let's close with the generous tender, and that's the generous offer. I couldn't find something that started with T that matched, but tender means offer. Prom I look it up, I promise. The generous offer from God is that he will use us despite of our past. And that's what I love about God. Verse 10. <laughs> and she who is my enemy will see, shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? You know when people see your failure, oh, you don't have enough faith in God, you're not going to do this, you're not going to do this. Well, my eyes are going to see her and she will be trampled down like the mud on the street. That's a beautiful scripture. Put that on your fridge. People will doubt you and the devil will doubt you, but the Lord will reign forevermore. And even though those voices in your head will be telling you to quit and pull out and stop, those voices will be trampled out like mud on the street. 
and you can be the man or woman that God's called you to be. Church, we have one life. You only have one life. 2019 is finished. We're in December. We're in December, guys. Three weeks, 2020. Remember when 2020 was like so far away? It's in a couple of weeks. So now, that life is going fast. Some of you remember when I preached shoot your arrows, it felt like yesterday. It's been a year. It's how quick life is. Some of you are so afraid to fail that you'll never win. So don't be afraid to fail. Because God will still use you despite the failure. Someone said, that most great people have attained their greatest success just one step beyond their greatest failure. You just got to keep going. Take another step, take another step, take another step. You know, people would have thought Jesus was a failure when on the cross, all that was there was just John and his mum. Imagine you had ministry for three years and the only people in your church was one guy who was just obsessed with being, who had obsession about being loved and your mum. No one else. Everyone else left you. Most people would say Jesus was a failure, but he wasn't. So let's close with three, three things. Three things. I know I'm going a little bit longer this morning, but we took out a song so I can go a bit longer, okay? So, number one, don't quit too early. Most of the time, we just quit too soon. Maybe you're failing today. Just keep going a little bit longer. There's a man by the name of John Wooden. He's one of the greatest uh, college basketball coaches. He is the greatest college basketball coach. He's won 12 titles at one point for UCLA. He won 11 in a row. Imagine winning 11 titles in a row. It's almost like the Golden State Warriors. But he won all of these. And you are the greatest. You're the greatest. This 12-year span was amazing. But he went, do you know how many he won in his first 16 years? Zero. He failed as a coach for 16 years. But he didn't quit. And in the 17th year, he won his first championship. And he kept winning them until his 28th year. Some of you, maybe you've been failing for a little while now. Just don't stop. Don't stop. You might call it failure. It's probably called preparation. It prepares you for for ministry. All the failures that I look back at my life, I'm like, oh, that's, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Because it's preparing me for something else now. How many of you remember the first time you went to the gym? Couldn't even lift a bar. And when you woke up in the morning and couldn't walk, right? But if you quit after one time that it hurts, you'll never get any gains. So if you're going to quit after one time you get some pain, You'll never get any gains in life. So don't use it. It, was, oh, it wasn't meant to be. I can't do it. It's not for me. Yeah, it, pro- it is. Just keep going, okay? Can we just put that aside? It's a lie from the enemy. It's not for me. It is for you. Keep going. Don't quit. Number one, don't quit too early. Number two, you need to define success before you define failure. Because most people here, you do, not know, you do not know what success is before God. If I had to ask you, what is success in God's eyes? Think about it. What is success in God's eyes? Would you say fruitfulness? If fruitfulness, if our church, the size of our church determined our success, so when disciples left, when the disciples left Jesus, was he a failure? In John 6, when the people left Jesus, was he a failure because his church went down? If it's fruitfulness, if Mormon churches have larger churches than us, does that mean they're, they're more blessed than we're, failure, we're failures? You know, when Jesus, Jesus was um, uh, talking with Peter and the disciples, he says, who do men say that I am? And they say, some John the Baptist, some Elijah. And they said, some say Jeremiah. 
I don't know if you've read the book of Jeremiah. It's very depressing. No one gets saved. So why do people say that Jesus was like Jeremiah? Wasn't Jeremiah a failure? No one got saved. What about Noah? Preached his whole life and all he could save was his own family? Sort of. The family even turned on him. Is it status? That the status you get in life is that success? So was, was Paul was Paul a failure? Because he was in prison. What about influence? What, what, what is success? And let me tell you what success is in God's eyes. Success in God's eyes is obedience. Jeremiah lived his whole life without one convert, but was a success. That's why they said to Jesus, what, what, is this Jeremiah? Because this guy is obedient. Just to do what God's called you to do and leave the results to him. Because we're so results orientated, right? So results orientated. And that, that's good. You should have that element. But first, what does God want me to do? That, that's, that's it. Come high water, come low water, come no water. What does God want me to do? Joshua 1.8, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. But you shall meditate in it day and night, you, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Obedience. Just be obedient. I've got a really cool quote here. I really like this quote. I was so excited to say this the whole week. Don't worry about how much milk you spill. Just don't lose your cow. <laughs> I really like that. Like That is the coolest quote ever. How good is that? Don't worry about how much milk you spill. Just don't lose your cow. Doesn't matter how many mistakes you make. Just don't lose your faith. Doesn't matter. Don't lose the sacred cow, okay? Just keep going. So success in God's eyes is obedience. So number one, don't quit too early. Number two, defining success is just obedience through thick and thin. That's why he'll say on on when we stand before him, he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Good, faithful. Not good and fruitful and you did this. No, you just, you were faithful. And finally, remember that God uses actual people, not ideal people. Because if he uses ideal people, none of us would make it. Beck, maybe. She stole an apple once. And, you know, but the rest of us, no, no chance. As we read our Bibles, you may, in Matthew, none of you have read the first seven, 17 verses of Matthew. The reason being is because I said, this guy begot this guy, begot this guy, begot this guy, begot this guy, begot this guy. And you, you read the first few verses and you're like, yeah, 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 And then verse 18, now the birth of Jesus. Like we, we just skip over that first 17 verses. I've done it many times. But I'm going to preach a sermon from that 17 verses soon. But it's all the names of the lineage of Christ. It starts from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and it goes all the way through to Jesus. But in this lineage, it's very odd because Matthew was written to Jews. Jews want lineage, but they, the women were never, ever part of the lineage of someone, right? It, that's just how they, they, they saw it. But in this uh, breakdown, there's, three, there's actually four women presented. That's very odd. Because they, they were never part of lineage. And look, let's look at the women that Matthew recorded. Number one, he recorded a woman by the name of Tamar. Tamar was a prostitute. He included another woman by the name of Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. He mentions Bathsheba without actually saying her name. It says, David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. So it's like, David had Solomon because there was a lady that, you know, he slept with her and then he killed his hus- her husband. And I just sort of put it all in there. Like, I just like this little, little 
without mentioning her, but it, but it didn't pretend it didn't happen. So the three ladies that are used, and Ruth, and, but she, was, she wasn't Jewish, and so, like, again, that would have threw, threw them off. So Tamar, the prostitute, um, Rahab, the prostitute, and Bathsheba, the one who sleeps with the king. Well, gee, that's a great lineage of Jesus, our Lord. So why didn't they just get, get it, not say it? Why did, they, why did they say it? The reason why is because God doesn't use perfect people. He doesn't use actual people. He uses actual people, not ideal people. Think, uh, if I didn't do that, then I'll be ready for God's use. Yeah, true. But God doesn't use perfect people. He doesn't use ideal people because none of us are ideal. He uses actual people, the ones that fail and get back up again. Our text says, until he pleads my case and executes justice for me, he will bring me forth to the light and I will see his righteousness. Church, just don't quit. If the lineage of Jesus included three prostitutes, surely God can still use us. Surely. So if you failed, you made mistakes, join the club we all have. Many of you, you have only seen me as a pastor. You haven't seen me as a disciple. I made heaps of mistakes. And I'm not going to tell you all of them, 100%. But by the grace of God, I can get through those mistakes, and so can you. We're all in this together. So don't quit. That's the hope of Christmas, isn't it? That God gave his son, that we have another chance at life. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. I was going to turn to John chapter 2. Book of John chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 13. Together, there's a book uh, titled Tiger of the Snows. And uh, it's by a man by the name of Tenzig Norgay. And he's a a fanatic for mountain climbing. He and a British British companion were going to climb Mount Everest. And his wife did not share his enthusiasm. She felt that he was obsessed. You are a daredevil, she said. You care nothing nothing about your death. uh, Sorry. And you care nothing about what your death will do to me or the children. He responded, of course I care. But this is my, my, uh, my work and my life. She said, but you are crazy. You will kill yourself on this mountain and you will die. All right, he said, I will die. For him, to live was to climb Mount Everest. His life revolved around that mountain. And it was better to die than to not climb it. You'd say this guy was a fanatic. But the question I have for you, church, is what does a fanatic look like as a Christian? What does a fanatic Christian look like? Another question is, are you a fanatical Christian? Because most of the time when we think of fanatic, we think of someone that's just more committed than us. If you're more than me, you're a fanatic. If you're less than me, I'm a fanatic. But someone wrote about this. He said, many who are called spiritual fanatics are simply those who are more devoted than ourselves. But when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, would you rather be told you believe too much or believe too little? Would you rather be told you care too much or care too little? Would you rather be told you tried too hard or didn't try hard enough? Would you rather be told you were too forgiving or too judgmental? Would you rather be told, well done, thou hyper-hopeful, risk-taking servant, or well done, thy cautious, play-it-safe, stay-at-home servant? The need of the hour for Christianity is men and women filled with the Holy Ghost who become fanatical for Christ. And my question is, are you fanatical for Christ? And if you are not, a second question, why not? Why not? 
So I'm going to preach from a very interesting text. Uh, Jesus just did his first miracle, turned the water into wine, John chapter 2. And later on, this is the first, uh, the next thing he does straight after that. I'm going to preach a sermon I've entitled, What Eats You? What gets to you? What eats you up? What, what breaks your heart? From John chapter 2, 13, verse 17. The Bible says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. And when he had made up a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and poured out uh, the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. What eats you up? Amen. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for your word. God, I'm thankful, God, for the Holy Ghost that you're already talking to people. You're already touching lives. God, even right now, I pray that the conviction of the Holy Ghost will be upon us. Let us not be a lukewarm church in these last days. Let us not have lukewarm disciples, lukewarm couples, and miss the revival that you had for us. God, fill us with the Holy Spirit. Fill us with zeal and passion and enthusiasm. God, let us give out everything. Let us be fanatical Christians tonight. We give you all the glory for what you're going to do. In the mighty name of Jesus, everybody says, Amen. Two points tonight. First, we want to look at our example. And remember, Jesus Christ is the model Christian for everything we do in life. Jesus is God in the flesh. Everything Jesus does, that's our example of how we should live our lives. And our text is a very odd picture of Christ. You know, most pictures of Jesus you'd see, uh, pictures of Jesus, you know, he's got his there, he's got his long, wavy, beautiful brown hair. Uh, he's like kneeling on the side or sitting, his skin is glowing, you know, he's got a nice jawline, his cheekbones are sticking out, and he looks nice and beautiful, and he never does anything wrong. But in our text, we see a different side to Christ that aren't really in the pictures. Verse 13, it starts off, and this is a picture of Jesus, and he was a man of zeal. I want you to remember this. Jesus was a man of zeal, and he's our example. Verse 13, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The Passover, as people would come, they'd sacrifice animals, uh, they'd give, uh, sacrifice these animals, and so uh, at the Passover time. And they'll travel from very, very far, uh, and they'll all come around. Jerusalem will be buzzing at this time. There could be hundreds, even thousands of people at the temple at this point. And in verse 14, he says, And he found the temple, who, uh, those who sold oxen and sheep and money and doves, and the money changers were doing business. So remember, this is sacrificing an animal is supposed to be part of your worship. And instead of worshiping, they're making money. They're doing business in the house of God. And there's no worship to God here. It's like when you go to the, to the airport, if you change your money at the airport, exchange it for another, another currency, you're always going to get the worst rate because at the airport, they give you very, very bad rates. That's why you try and do them when you're back, back home. But this is what's happening there. People were ripping them off. He says the money changers were doing business. It means they were overcharging. That uh, people would come from other countries that had to change money, but they'll charge them twice, three times, four times as much. They were just trying to make money off these people and not give them the best animals. They were just trying to do something for themselves. Worship had gone completely out the window. Church was all about themselves. What I get out of this, not about God. And verse 15, when he had made a whip of cords, <laughs> this is, that's, that's pretty interesting. And I want you to note here that Jesus wasn't raging. People think of this story, Jesus rage, ah, you can't be raging and make a whip at the same time. So Jesus was very calm. 
and he made this whip of cords and he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, poured out the changers' money, the changers money and overturned the tables. This is a beautiful story. Can you imagine doing, Jesus doing this? Again, not rage. He didn't injure people. He wasn't whipping people as they went out of the temple. But he was disgusted at the way they were living their lives. Jesus was furious about their irreverence to God. Their fake worship. Their fake love. And this got Jesus so angry. And we see here the loyalty of Christ to his father. He goes, my father's not going to be dishonored by you. He says, you're not going to do that around me. Jesus says, this is unacceptable. I love my father too much for you to act like this. And a sign that you're spiritually mature is when you see God being dishonored and it hurts you. A sign of spiritual immaturity is that you see God being dishonored and it doesn't make a difference. So Jesus overturns the tables and the disciples saw it. Then they quote the Old Testament in verse 16, 17. Sorry. And the disciples remembered it is written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. That's uh, Psalm 69, 11, either 10 or 11. And it says, the word zeal means to boil, to be hot or to glow. It describes one who is fervent and enthusiastically devoted and eagerly pursuing of something. One who is earnestly committed to a side or cause. This, the word Zeal has the same word as uh, the same root word in, in Hebrew as jealousy. So think about that. It's like someone messing with something that you're jealous for. And that you're passionate about it. That you're completely focused and completely unwavering. Or you, you are not going to share this with anybody. It is yours and yours alone. And you are focused on this. Then he says, eating me up. This means engaged my encounter, attention and affection. It has surpassed all other feelings a soul desire of mind. And Jesus says, I am red hot, I am boiling over, and all my attention and all my affection, surpassing every other feeling, my soul desire is what? Zeal for what? Zeal for my house. Zeal for my father's house. My father's glory, my father's respect, my father's honor, reverence and worship. So what do we learn from this text? There's no more temple. Or is there temples? Because there is still a temple. The temple is not this wonderful building. This temple is you. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. And God still searches temples. And He still goes through and says, What's going on here? Are you worshipping? Are you giving me everything? Are you zealous? Do you have passion for me? Or is it turned to yourself? What if God showed up to the potter's house on Ihanga? Let's not talk about other churches because who cares about other churches? We're not going to give an account of other churches. You're going to give an account for ourselves. What would he find? What would he see in our hearts? Would he see passion, zeal, enthusiasm? Or would he see our own personal gain? Because God and the Holy Spirit in the Bible, all through the Bible, they're pictured as fire. I'll just give you one reference. Matthew 3.11 I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, this is John the Baptist talking, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with this Holy Spirit and fire. Men and women of God should be characterized by fire. 
You drive around Auckland and you see so many beautiful cathedrals and churches, right? They're everywhere. You go out, even in the prayer room, when I pray in the mornings, I could see the, the, the pinnacle of the Catholic church down the road. And they're everywhere. And these, these buildings must have taken so long to build. Like, think about how long these buildings would have taken to build. Would have taken years on years and years without the technology that, that we had today. And when I see this, my heart gets stirred because I think about these churches had revival. These churches were filled with people who had given everything to God. God must have been moving in powerful ways for them to build these buildings. But unfortunately, many of these beautiful buildings are nothing more than just a religious gathering or a museum or a food bank or a children's play center. The Holy Spirit left years ago. It's gone. The true gospel of repentance isn't there anymore. Probably don't even know what the word repent means in those buildings. The presence of God isn't there. and Sinners definitely don't get saved there. And Christians no longer lay down their lives at the altars there. These buildings were built for God to live in them. And God no longer lives there. And that doesn't start with a temple. It starts with you. Before God leaves a church, he leaves a people. And just like Samson, the Holy Ghost can leave and you won't even know. There's no longer a flame. So the question I have for you, I've got a lot of questions tonight, I guess. I haven't realized that. The question is, is that fire in you? Do you have the fire? Because the disciples saw Jesus' zeal, not just his words. Verse 16, and he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. It's, it gets to me. It overwhelms me. The house of God, the temple of God. We used to have chants. We on fire for God. We on fire. We don't do them anymore. I wonder why. Because it's pretty hard to be passionate about something that's not inside. There's a song. Margaret Jackson's got a song, Remember the Time. It goes like this. Do you remember the time when we fell in love? When we were young and innocent then? Do you remember how it all began? And it seemed just like heaven. So why did it end? I wonder if God sings something like that. Do you remember the time? Remember the time when we were in love and you were young and you were innocent? When the world had nothing in you, like Jesus said, this world has nothing in me. But now the world is, is there's more of the world inside than the church. Do you remember the time? Do you remember when we fell in love? When you didn't leave your first love? When, when anything was possible with God? When your emotions weren't, weren't an issue? When sacrifice wasn't an issue? A man by the name of Dennis Selfridge, he's got a poem. The title of the poem is When Do We Need Revival? It says, 
When do we need revival? When the things of God do not stir you. When the worship of God does not attract you. When the glories of heaven do not interest you. When the horrors of hell do not concern you. When the judgment of the lost does not move you. When the word of God does not convict you. When the prayer meeting does not draw you. When the house of God does not delight you. You need a revival. Do you remember the time? When the things of God stirred you? When the worship of God attracted you? When the glory of heaven consumed you? So what does it mean when we say we're on fire, we're on fire? What does it mean? What does that mean? I'm on fire. A couple of things. Firstly, it will mean that you have a prayer life. Yes, we go through dry seasons. But they are seasonal. Not forever. And if you're always in a dry season, I have to come into question your prayer life. Hebrews 4.16 Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace and help in time of need. Come boldly before God and you'll find grace, a spiritual empowerment in your life. But if you don't have that power, you, you can't get it anywhere else. So I ask you, do you have a prayer life? Do you know how to pray? Do you pray? Except just at church and for your food and before you go to bed. Do you have a prayer life? I'm not talking about perfection. Every day you pray for four hours on a mountain. But do you have zeal in your prayer life? Or is it just a prayer session that's more like a sleep session? That it's just a... When was the last time you were broken in prayer? When was the last time God pointed some stuff out in your heart in prayer? When was the last time that you were desperate before God in prayer? Because a believer is not above their prayer life. Firstly, you have a prayer life. Number two, that you, you have boldness serving God. Not, not talking about noise, because anyone could be noisy. And most people cover their, <laughs> their, cover their insecurities by noise. But boldness... Is the definition here is to be free and, and a fearless confidence, a cheerful courage, freedom in speaking, unreservedness in speech. That means there's a passion behind you, that you're free to do the will of God, and nothing in this world holds you back. No sin holds you back, no girl holds you back, no guy holds you back, no career holds you back, that you are bold as a lion before the Lord. Proverbs 28.1, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Not bold like a kitty cat. Not, not just they scrape by, but there's an aggression. Acts 4.13, And when they saw the boldness of Peter and of John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. They realized they're being with Jesus. Because when you're being with Jesus, you get boldness. But you have to connect to Jesus. You can't get it any other way. You can fake it for a while, but soon enough that will fizzle out. And I've seen it so many times. You turn timid, passive, Always struggling, no dominion, excuses, playing games. The third thing is being on fire for God is when you are deeply and intimately in love with Jesus Christ.
Are you in love with Jesus? Deeply in love with Jesus? Is he your everything? That you prefer to, to make him more important than anyone else? That you prefer to let down your friends and letting down God? And I know we make mistakes, um, but does that hurt you sometimes? If, if that doesn't hurt, if you sin and there is no pain, there's an issue. Like, like I know sometimes when I'm being a bum to my wife, and I know I'm wrong, and that gets me, because I love my wife. But if you can hurt God and it not affect you, I don't know if you got it, man. It's a cool quote here. It says, it's easier to cool down a fanatic than warm up a corpse. I found that pretty interesting. It's got nothing to do with the sermon, I don't think, but it's, it's in there somewhere. Fanatic, it's there. So let's close with areas to produce seal. So, Pastor, I want to produce this seal. Okay, what areas can I, can I push in so I can grow in my zeal? Okay, first area you can grow in zeal is in repentance. Repentance. Revelation 3, 2 and 3, it's the churches, the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation. These are the words of Jesus Christ to the churches today. They say, uh, they apply to each, each church applies to the church in one way, but uh, many scholars say that each church reflected a period of time, and the last church is the last day's church. And the last church, the seventh church, is the Laodicean church, which is the lukewarm church. In Revelation 3, 19, it says, As many as I love, I rebuke. And chasten. These are the words of Jesus. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Repent. This is the first step. If you're going to get zeal, these are the steps of how to produce it and how to get it back if you've lost it. If you want zeal in your life, it only starts with true repentance. You must repent. Do you, do you understand how much forgiveness we need to wash away our sin? Do you, do you realize how deep our sin was against God? Do, do, do we realize the hole that we are all stuck in without God? And how bad our sin actually was. That, that we are nothing without God. Repentance. Zealous repent. Red hot repentance. Do you have a life, a prayer life of repentance? Or did you just pray to altar and then you've never, never pre- repented of anything ever again? That was the last time that you, you realized that you were evil. He said, God, I'm sorry. God, please forgive me. I know the things I'm doing are right, and I'm sorry. I don't want to be like this, and I'm going to change. It was the last time you got desperate before God. You were really before God, not just like, uh, I'm just going through a season. Well, how about you get before God and say, God, I'm sorry for, for how I'm acting, and that my passion hasn't been passionate enough for you. I've been passionate for other things, and I'm sorry for turning away from you. Please, God, would you please, 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 would you please forgive me? Or is our forgiveness, oh God, forgive me for my sin. I'm sorry for what I did for you. Sorry, just please forgive me. I believe that you died and rose again on the third day. And I believe in you. Help me live for you for the rest of my life in Jesus' name. Amen. Not a weak prayer. Not just acting in emotions. There's a desire in your heart to repent before God. You know that you've sinned against God. You know who you are before God. And when we fail before God, and not again, like I preached this morning, I'm not against failure. We all fail and that's fine. But through your failure, there should be repentance connected straight away. Because what I'm getting, people, people fail and now they're proud of their sin and there's no repentance. But there should be a brokenness, there should be a humility that said, what the heck am I doing with my life? How can I act like this before Almighty God? Firstly, zeal and repentance. Secondly, second area 
once you truly repent, these, these go in order. These flow into each other. And the scripture, zeal is only mentioned a few times in, in, our, in the Bible. And they're all mentioned in these, these three key areas. One, repent. Number two, be zealous in good works. Do what is good. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. We are to be burning hot for good works and encouraged and passionate for good works. Always wanting to do something good for God. Romans 12.11, never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. This word enthusiasm means to be filled with the Spirit of God, actually. 2 Samuel 6.14, and David danced before the Lord with all of his might. I like that scripture. He gave everything before God. If you're going to do anything for God, you, you need to have enthusiasm serving God. Doing good works. Because if you're truly repentant, the next step is, what can I do for God now? That's always the next step. That's what Paul, he's, Saul was, was converted on the, on the road. Uh, and then Jesus is there. And he says, what do, you, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do? And true repentance always transfers to, to saying, God, what do you want from my life? Not, do I have to go? Do I have to pray? Do I have to read? You don't have to do jack, man. Don't. What you probably need to do is come back to the altar. It's like, do I have to love my wife? Do I have to look after my wife? That's weird. And it's weird for Christians to say, do I have to? To God who did everything for us. How many remember when you were enthusiastic when you were out, were out sinning? How many of you went out to the nightclub and then waited 30 minutes and said, ah, time to go? It's going too late. How many at the nightclub? Oh, I don't like this song. Oh, that's it. So I'm going home. How many of the boys were out drinking? Oh, this costs too much. I'm, I'm financially stable. I'm, I'm not going to waste my money here. How much you gave more than 10% to the devil before you got saved? And then offering time, it's like... You open your wallet and all the, all the moths fly out and it's like, it's... Man, wouldn't it be a shame if the world was more enthusiastic for the devil than we were enthusiastic for God? Man, remember the time? Remember the time when no sacrifice was too big? Remember you at this altar and you prayed, God, whatever you want me to do, no price is too high. What do you want? What do you want, God? I'll give everything. There was nothing too deep. There was no, oh, God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do that. What, what happened to the fire? Carnality, lukewarmness, satisfied, lost your zeal. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The reason you are alive God prepared you to do what he told you to do. You were made, you, God made you, and he made you for good works before you were born, that you should walk in them. That's the only reason that you're alive. And if you are doing anything other than the will of God, you will never fit. It's like putting a square uh, piece into a round hole. You can try, and the only thing that's going to happen is that you will be broken, and that's the only way you'll fit. Because that's not what God called for us. God's... God spoke to me about this, this part in the prayer room. He said this. He said, people prefer sympathy over sacrifice. People want, feel sorry for me. Feel sorry for, for me. Look how hard it is for me. Feel sorry for me. And they don't want to sacrifice anymore. They prefer sympathy. 
So firstly, repentance. Truly repented people go all out for God. And that's, that should be normal. That should be normal. This shouldn't be fanatical. And then when you give, do good works, the, the third area that you should have, be, have zeal and passion and enthusiasm in, and the only other time it's in the Bible, is in 1 Corinthians 14, 12. This is for spiritual gifts. Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you might seek to excel. It's interesting. There's a few things in here, but we'll break them down in just a moment. But what are the spiritual gifts? I did a whole Bible hour on it. Words of wisdom, words of knowledge, healing, faith, tongues and prophecy, interpretation, discernment of spirits, miracles. And we're supposed to use those gifts. We're supposed to be zealous to have those gifts. Because firstly, you get saved. Then you start doing some things for God. And then you go into the third stage as you become a spiritual man, a spiritual woman. Many people don't pass that, that third barrier. They do work, 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 but they never get into the spiritual gifting of God. And that's when you really start to get the fire of God back. You're supposed to use the gifts. That's why it's called a gift from God himself. And you should pray for them. Be zealous for them. I encourage all of you, pray for these gifts. Say, God, use me in these areas. Romans 12 has another list. It says 7 to 9, if your gift is serving others, maybe your gift is serving others. Think about that. Because everyone hates serving, right? I'm not going to serve. Maybe that's the gift that God had given you. You will be the greatest servant of all time. He goes, so serve them well. If you're a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. Some of you have that gift. Many of you have that gift. But sometimes you feel intimidated to say something. But we should all be encouragers. But some of you have the gift of encouragement because when you say something, it means so much more. How many here, you're going through a tough time, someone said something and it made, it made so much uh, influence in your life. They didn't realize, but it helped you, encouraged you a lot. They just said, sent you a text, said one word, took you out for tea one night, did something small and it made a difference. Raise your hand if that's ever happened to you. Someone's really encouraged you just by something small, right? And you probably didn't even know. That might have been someone else in the church because it's a gift. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it's to give, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. <laughs> I'm not even going to, I don't have time. And if you have a gift of showing kindness to others, do it gladly. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. I love that, that verse. I'm going to break it down in another sermon. But if you truly love God, you'll hate what is bad. It's not tolerate what is bad. You hate what is bad. You hate this. This is why Jesus turned the tables because he hates this. He hates irreverence. So our text, that 1 Corinthians 14, 12, be zealous, spiritual gifts. What's the reason? Edification of the church. Edification means, means improvement. It's to bless the church. And then it says that you, and that you seek to excel. So you excel. So when you're spiritual, the church grows and you grow. And what we need is men and women who will be spiritual. Some of you have been saved for, it's not just you've been saved a month or two or a few weeks, you've been saved for some years now. Now's the time you need to start getting into some spiritual, spiritual uh, leadership areas. You need to get some spiritual maturity, some areas of, of these spiritual gifts in your life. It's time to grow. Now let it be us. I'm surprised at how many Christians aren't spiritual. Everyone in New Zealand goes to church. They, don't, they, don't, they can't even spell spiritual. And you ask them, what are the spiritual gifts? They couldn't tell you. They couldn't tell you. And if you've been saved for so long, you should know these spiritual gifts. You should be praying for them. You should be asking God that 
Wouldn't it be great if God gave you a gift? There is no gift of singing in the Bible. Did you know that? Gave some the gift of talent. Some of you think you've got it. You don't. You don't. But we, we have the gift of kindness. If you, if you have kindness, do it gladly. And we gladly tell you you're amazing. Let me close real quickly that. In faith in something, this quote here, it is faith in something and enthusiasm for something that makes life worth living. Life is only worth living if you do it properly, enthusiastically, zealously, passionately. What's the point of serving God if you're dragging your feet every day? It's a horrible existence, man. So let us be like Christ. Stop saying depressing things. Stop telling everyone how hard it is. Stop trying to get sympathy. How about we get some sacrifice happening? Get, get, some, get some passion inside of you. Talk it. Live it. Enjoy it. Act it. Pray it. Get something inside of your life that has a spiritual revival that breaks forth. Get some dominion in your life. Don't be tossed to and fro by every wind that comes in life. If the waves go this way, oh, I'm feeling like this. If guys, oh, I'm feeling like this. How about you build on the rock of Christ and not move? And this is what we need in this last day's generation. Just before Jesus comes back, we need men and women who are full of the Holy Ghost that have the fire of God inside of them. Now, are you on fire? Are you on fire? If not, you should probably get on fire very soon because Christ is coming back to his church. And oh, let him not come back to a lukewarm church. Let him not come back to a church that is dead. Remember the other church that he says, you think you're alive, you're dead. Because you've got a good reputation, but God sees the heart. I challenge all of you. What eats you? What eats you up? What gets you? What, what gets to your heart? I pray, I pray it's a zeal for your house has eaten me up. You are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Let God dwell in you, amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. I appreciate everyone.